Hello, you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. As always, we've got an exciting show for you this month. I'll be talking about exoplanets in the era of extremely large telescopes. Hannah's going to discuss the recent goings-on at the JWST Workshop for Transiting Exoplanet Observations, and Andrew is covering the most recent exoplanetary news. But first, we need to meet our exocasters. My name's Hugh Osborne, and I study transiting exoplanets, mostly with the Plato satellites here at the Laboratoire d'Astrophysique de Marseille. Uh, I'm Hannah Wakeford and I use the Hubble Space Telescope to study what makes up the atmospheres of mostly giant exoplanets and I'm currently a research fellow at the University of Exeter. And I'm Andrew Rushby and I study planetary habitability and the early climate of the Earth from NASA's Ames Research Centre in Northern California. So first off, Hugh is going to talk uh, about some extremely large telescopes and what they're going to do for exoplanet studies. Hugh. Yeah, so the last maybe 100 years have seen something equivalent to a Moore's Law for telescopes. So if you go back to the early 20th century, we, we had the, the, a 2.5 metre telescope. And then by the mid 20th century, that sort of doubled to a 5 metre telescope. Then in the late days of the 20th century, we got something like the Keck telescopes, which are 10 metres in diameter, followed by the 8 metre mirrors of the VLT, the Very Large Telescope in Chile, and things like SALT, and uh, many, many, many telescopes have, have diameters around 10 metres. And these are the current um, limit, the current like maximum size of telescopes across the world, uh, the sort of very large telescope era. And the next iteration of this sort of Moore's Law is to double again to the extremely large telescope era in, well, in the next decade, we hope. So this should take us to something like 20 or 25 meter mirrors and in fact we're planning for telescopes even larger than that so i guess i set out this this month to try and figure out what these giant telescopes are going to do for exoplanetary science um so there's a few already being built actually so the these include the gmt or the giant magellan telescope so these kind of develop on the magellan telescopes that already exist uh, but instead of having one mirror, they take seven of those eight-meter mirrors, in six in a ring around one in the center, making it something like 25 meters across. Uh, and this is probably going to be the first of the ELT-era telescopes going up online. It's already being built in Chile at Las Campanas, and it could be finished by 2021 at a cost of about a billion US dollars. Uh, the TMT is, is, the, is next in terms of size and probably uh, timing as well. So this is going to be a 30 meter well it's called the 30 meter telescope so we, we hope it's going to be 30 meters across uh composed of 500 individual mirrors each of which are 1.4 meters uh, so this is going to be a, a massive operation and it's going to probably be built in hawaii on mauna kea although this was in hiatus for a long time as post protests over its plan to be built on what what is a sacred site um on top of mauna kea meant that contingency plans were drawn up to put it in the Canary Islands and things were delayed for a couple of years. But actually last week, a judge in Hawaii ruled that the telescope should get a permit to start being built. So hopefully work can start soon. And although the original 2022 target is probably going to slip a couple of years, uh, first light in 2024 is, is a possibility anyway. And this should cost about $1.4 billion. Um, 
And then finally, the ELT is the European equivalent of these uh, American designs, and it's going to be a full, well, 39.3 meters in diameter, so almost 40 meters. And it's going to use 800 of these 1.4 meter uh, mirrors, and it will be big enough, in fact, that you can have four singles tennis matches going on on top of it at the same time. Although I think that might ruin the finish of the mirrors, apparently. Um, but yeah, it's going to be built in Chile, at the Terra Amazonas, and it's going to be um, hopefully aiming for 2024 first light, but we know how these things tend to slip, so may maybe a couple of years later than that. And at a cost of something like 1.1 billion euros, at the moment anyway. Uh, so slightly more, about as expensive as the TMT, maybe slightly more given your uh, current conversion rate. Um, and there's a few other sort of ELT proposed, not yet started building projects. And these include things like the 74 meter Colossus telescope, which is something like 58 eight meter telescopes connected together. And they're trying to get funding on Kickstarter, well, at least at least initially. Uh, so I'm not sure. Obviously, this one maybe might not happen in the next ever. Um, <laughs> another one is the overwhelmingly large telescope, which was effectively a precursor to the ELT design. Uh, it was originally going to be 60 or even 100 meters in diameter, but this was scaled back to, to save half a billion euros. Um, and then there's a few tape space telescope kind of uh, designs in, kicking around as well, including Levoir, which is an 8 to 16 meter NASA proposal, uh, Habex, which is only 6 meters but should do similar things to the, the ELTs we're building at the moment, and Supersharp, which is like a dirty, cheap uh, 24 meter ESA proposal, which, um, but all of these are kind of a long way off and haven't yet got past the design phase really. So, what's um, so why are we going for these giant telescopes on the ground? Why aren't we sending them to space? Well, as high as those costs are, I quoted, they're far cheaper than going into space. And this is because, well, parts don't have to be super light or fit inside a spacecraft fairing. They, the telescopes don't require power or processing or transmission to be done all on board. Um, being on the ground also means that parts can be replaced and have potentially a far longer lifetime than a space telescope. And new instruments can be installed as technology advances so all in all staying on the ground is is far cheaper and in fact if even if the final costs of those three projects i mentioned are, are doubled then all three are going to cost a combined amount less than the james webb space telescope which is um pretty pretty uh remarkable in itself so why should we go for these super size super large um telescopes well a larger telescope gives us a couple of important bonuses. Um, one of those is that the collecting area is a lot larger, and the more the more mirrors you have, the more light you're collecting, the more precise you can study the light from um, from things like planets and stars that host planets in detail. But also, the fainter objects we can we can start to see far far fainter than we can currently see with um, with current telescopes. And the second factor is that a larger diameter means we have better resolution. And this is basically a factor that's how blurry or how, how, how much detail we can get in an image. So the human eye can't resolve the Galilean moons, whereas telescopes study in them in detail. Hubble can't resolve the sizes of nearby stars. But as we heard last month, big telescopes like ALMA can because they have a lot wider telescope size. And one part, key part of this is 
advanced optics, which is adaptive optics, sorry, which which is something that we can do now on the ground relatively um, simply, which is a, a basically enables large telescopes like these ELTs to remove the smoothing out effect that the atmosphere has uh, by constantly monitoring for how the light passes through the atmosphere and correcting for it. So that means that these these new ELT telescopes can get down to um, resolutions that um, we've never been able to to observe before. So what does that mean for exoplanets? Well, I guess these two um, these two things explain those goals quite well. So we have more photons, more precision, and better resolution. So this means we can see um, things that are faint and things that are extremely close to other bright things, such as pl planets close to their stars. Um, so it also it also will develop, or well, the, these new telescopes will develop our knowledge of. Um, RVs and transits also, so radial velocities come from splitting that the light from a star into its colours, and if you have a lot more light from a star, you can do this to a much finer degree. So we can get down to a sensitivity that's not even possible with current scopes, so something like 10, 10 centimetres per second, so literally a snail's pace, can be possible with these ELTs. And this will allow habitable zone Earths found by things like Plato or other techniques to be followed up really precisely. Um, transits actually might be tricky because these things aren't quite designed to do um, to, to study the light of a star in such detail. So there's no reference stars in the frame that we can use to, to figure out what the flux is doing. Um, and it's also hard to maintain a constant flux because of how the ELTs work. So one of the big gains of the ELT era is going to be in our knowledge of the atmospheres of these planets. So one of the reasons is that we get a lot of um, photons, obviously, but also we have this high resolution. So for planets that can't be resolved, and this, um, then, we can, then we can measure sharp features in the planetary atmospheres um, and detect them. And we've already done this for giant planets with current telescopes, but the ELT and, and, and other telescopes like that will allow things like ozone to be detected in super-Earths and, and exo-Earths, potentially, although this might, may take dozens of in-transits uh, measurements for just the best, um, the closest and brightest M-dwarf planets. And so this could take more than a decade, effectively, using every single transit in that time. Um, so maybe there are better ways to study these planets. Um, but as I kind of alluded to, the best thing that these ELTs is going to be for is imaging these new planets. So, um, and one of the good things about the ELTs is that we'll not only just have this resolution factor, we'll also have high, or image resolution, we'll also have high spectral resolution. So we're able to see these, um, both the planet and the star, in a huge array of different colours, effectively. And this allows us to separate both the starlight from the planet and the star, but also we can separate them in, in terms of their velocity. And that means we can push much to much closer orbital separations than we can in low resolution, um, and that we than we can from space. So, um, so this means we'll be able to push down to image planets that are being born, so hot young planets around bright stars, and we'll be able to do this to much smaller planet sizes and much closer distances than we can currently do. Um, we'll also be able to survey nearby systems looking for giant planets and sort of Neptune-sized planets, and we'll be capable of studying the reflected light from old giant planets with 
um, which have been fa found with, um, well, which will give us spectra, albedos, etc., of these 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 planets themselves. So we'll be able to characterize these to a degree that we hadn't really dreamed of before, and we'll be able to characterize known planets too. So something like as many as 30 planets that have been found with the radial velocity method will be imageable with the ELT and we'll be able to get spectra for some of these planets with instruments like METIS and we'll be able to do high contrast imaging down to uh, super Earth-sized planets and even for close the closest M-dwarfs possibly even Earth-sized planets so there's something like 300 M-dwarfs within 20 parsecs that we'll be able to survey for terrestrial planets and likely five to ten of these will have habitable zone planets there within the reach of ELT. Earths around solar type stars are out of reach with this technique and in fact even Earths around M-dwarfs might be tricky so to go beyond a few dozen nearby systems that we might be able to characterize these uh, terrestrial planets we'll need to move beyond 40 meters and towards something like the overwhelmingly large telescope the 100 meter mirror I mentioned in the start or something like the Darwin or TPF projects which plan to, to ultra-precisely align many space telescopes in orbit and image exo-Earths that way. Um, so stay tuned for that, but, but in the next 10 years we should be able to vastly increase our knowledge of, of many planets thanks to these giant new telescopes. That's really uh, interesting, I think, that well, is this envisioned, are these giant telescopes envisioned to be detection survey ability or are they just for follow-up? Um, I think it's a bit of both, really. I mean, to be honest, one of the main things they're for is for galaxy studies. They're not really, uh, well, it's not quite true, but, but I think it will be hard to get a lot of time on the ELT, for example, um, to do a survey of nearby stars because it will take a lot of observing time and there are lots of other fields trying to get time on these these instruments and these um, these telescopes so I think characterization is is much easier to do in terms of time because you know where the planets are and you know where to look and when to look as well so um, so it may discover well the, the, the all three of these are going to be potentially looking for uh, surveying for young planets and or nearby planets, sorry, and but probably not many stars. Can we also just take a minute to appreciate how wonderfully descriptive something like the extremely large telescope is, or the overwhelmingly large telescope? But my only concern is that we're going to run out of superlative adjectives pretty soon. What what comes after overwhelmingly large? How how much more can we be whelmed? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, I mean, fantastic. astronomers large. can definitely come up with that, right? I, I'm, I'm sure we can uh, think of something something better. <laughs> Are some of the other telescopes going to be demoted at some point to the underwhelmingly large telescope? Underwhelmingly small telescopes. But it, it sounds like it's certainly going to open up the future for these RV planets. And that sounds like a really interesting because it's, it's an area of characterization parameter space we really haven't been able to delve into. Um, due to the nature of the planets themselves. So if there are some young, hot radial velocity planets, then it sounds like these telescopes are really the only way to get at those. And it, it's interesting as well, because you get more than just you might expect from um, 
from an exoplanet by observing it with something like uh, Epix, which is the ELT planet imager. Because if you can get the, if, if you can separate it in velocity as well using the spectrum of the planet, you can also get things like the speed of of the planet around the star because of its velocity. You get something like the um, dynamics in the atmosphere due to the how spread out that those lines coming from the planet is, as well as the um, the amount of things in the atmosphere as well. So so these are things that only the high resolution in terms of um, the spectra basically gives us. So things like James Webb, which is we're launching, um, will have really low resolution spectra because you can't really send a heaving great big high resolution spectra, which weigh tons, into space. So um, I think that's the area, those, the, the things that high resolution spectra will give us is the area that um, will be lacking in 10 years time when James Webb will have mopped up a lot of the hot Jupiters with, with, with the low resolution spectra. Now, Hannah's going to tell us all about the James Webb Space Telescope Workshop, which happened at the beginning of July at the Space Telescope Science Institute. So what went on? Uh, so, yeah, it was the Enabling Transiting Exoplanet Observations with JWST Workshop. So we called it ETO, uh, JWST 2017. Um, and it was on July 10th to 12th at Space Telescope Science Institute, which is in Baltimore, Maryland, in the U.S., um, and the aim of this workshop itself was to really bring together the exoplanet community um, to really learn about what James Webb is going to do for us. Um, the, the point was to discuss the capabilities of the James Webb Space Telescope to further characterise uh, exoplanets. And that's a really key goal of the telescope itself. The meeting had 64 registered participants um, and uh, they were from 32 different institutions. So roughly, you know, on average, two people from each institution. So it's a hugely diverse group of people that came together. Um, it, the workshop uh, occurred over three days. There were 29 talks, 18 of which were science talks from the community, with the remaining 12 covering each of the different instruments of James Webb, uh, the tools available to the community for observational planning um, and things like that. In addition, there were 25 different posters which were presented by members of the community. And the workshop included five different interactive sessions with small data challenges that really helped understand how to propose for James Webb time, uh, such as filling out the observation planning form that we have to use. Um, we currently use the same one for the Hubble Space Telescope observations, but that's going to be purposed towards the James Webb observations as well. So really learning how to use that is important for planning any observations you want to do with the telescope. We were also taken through Pandexo, which is the online Python notebook, which was written by Natasha Battaglia to simulate James Webb observations. Um, and these, this is the only way that you can simulate the James Webb observations and the exposure time calculations you need for time series observations with James Webb. So if you need an ETC for time series observations, you need to be using Pandexo. Uh, so they took the, the community that was there through that and how to use that. Um, and also we were introduced to a tool that Space Telescope Science Institute is developing called ExoCTK, which includes a number of different things that are required for any kind of observational analysis. So limb darkening calculators, uh, atmospheric simulators, target, target overlap charts for different instruments that you might be using. So there was a lot of stuff that was really covered in the three days. Um, all of this sounds a, a little bit dense, so sorry about that, but uh, it, it's pretty much encompassed by the three aims that were set out at the beginning of the meeting. We want to introduce people to what 
the James Webb Space Telescope can currently do. We want to show what tools are available to the community so that they can use the telescope. And we want to work out how we can leverage all of the things that are available to us to turn the observations that we want to make into really exciting science. So the meeting kicked off with a nice update on where James Webb is now. Um, and at, as of the meeting, they were closing the 40 ton door on the cryogenic test chamber at the Johnson Space Center, where James Webb will undergo three months of cryogenic testing. Now it takes 10 days to get down to the pressures of space and roughly a month after that to get down to temperature. So that's right about where we are now. Uh, the James Webb Space Telescope is sitting in its nicely sealed chamber A and it's at minus 253 degrees Celsius, so just 20 Kelvin. And it has surrounding it a pressure 10 millionth that of what we're sitting in right now under Earth's atmosphere, 10 millionth. So it's very, very low pressure environment and very, very cold right now, which is one of the critical tests. And just yesterday, they completed the end-to-end -end communications test with the test bus, which will transmit all of the data from the telescope to the Space Telescope Science Institute, where the operations center is actually located. So I think it's safe to say that right now, James Webb is well on its way to, to launching in October of 2018. Now, I'm not going to go through everything that happened at the meeting and every talk and all of that, but I'd, I'd like to give some highlights and some of the points that, you know, to, to introduce our ExoCast community to James Webb itself. Now, the James Webb Space Telescope has four instruments, uh, NEARIS, NEARSPEC, NEARCAM and MIRI. Now, each of the instruments have special time series observation modes designed specifically for the transiting exoplanet studies. All of the near-infrared instruments go up to 5 microns in wavelength, with MIRI as the only instrument to cover the longer wavelengths up to 30 microns. However, anything beyond 12 microns can only be reached in time series mode with photometry. So there is a, there is a big gap where we're only going to be able to use photometric filters to uh, really look at these MIRI longer wavelengths. Now, within each instrument itself, there are a number of different modes, uh, ways in which you can use that instrument uh, that are appropriate for these time series observations. So when you're planning your observations, uh, this should be the selection of the mode that you want to use should really be driven very strongly by your science case. That mode should represent the reason why you need it. Now, a number of the instruments have what are called bright modes. James Webb uh, is designed to look at things that are very, very faint, very, very far away for the cosmology uh, community. So for the exoplanets where we're, we're looking much closer to home around brighter things, they had to specifically design these bright modes, which allow us to look at uh, magnitudes of JMAG up to seven. Though there are some where you can go a bit brighter than that, although it becomes a limiting factor so you're going to lose some information so it's really a very very much a trade-off with these brighter targets that we're going to be looking at now importantly james webb will be the only way to get spectra of these fundamental parameters such as the carbon to oxygen ratio of an atmosphere uh, that is the the ratio the amount of carbon species versus the amount of oxygen species um, and it will be the best and sometimes only way to look at small and cold exoplanets. Uh, and the transiting method uh, is currently 
and will be for a long time the only way to characterise close-in planets. Now, we will likely be, by the end of Webb's run, at the point where we've measured nearly all hot Jupiters uh, and a significant number of Neptune-sized worlds. This is possibly going to include uh, uh, all of the new ones that will be found by ground and space-based discovery facilities, but uh, that's up to Hugh. I leave that to his job. Uh, in terms of the characterization of uh, James Webb, will will help us link composition abundance to planet formation. So that really joins the communities of the, the disk and direct imaging communities together. Um, we'll be able to really investigate the primary and secondary atmospheres and the origin and extent of those atmospheres. In terms of the, the physics and chemistry, uh, we'll finally be able to test more intricate detailed models, uh, including the temperature and pressure structures of an atmosphere in, in 3D. That's something that we're really just starting to get to grips with. You know, planetary atmospheres are 3D. We need to really understand them and link our, in, our, our distant observations to those. The chemistry, is it equilibrium, is it disequilibrium? This, this spans different temperature regimes. As we're moving away from the star, these close-in giant planets that we're looking at are entering different chemical regimes. We really need to look into those and extending out to the carbon-based species is gonna allow us to investigate that. And we're gonna be able to hopefully determine the difference between a condensate cloud and a photochemically generated cloud uh, or haze. So there's, there's a lot of scientific goals that we're going to be able to reach with the James Webb Space Telescope. And, and there was a lot of people talking about these at the meeting. Um, as, as David Singh put it in his opening talk, he said that James Webb will be the age of precision because Hubble's been the age of detection. Now we're going to be able to constrain what we're seeing in these atmospheres and really try and understand the intricacies of them. Now, throughout the meeting, there were talks on a wide range of topics uh, within the community, from transit analysis tools and instrument systematics to atmospheric retrievals, from giant to small planets with James Webb, and from clear to cloudy atmospheres. Um, one thing that was made abundantly clear throughout the entirety of the talks is that we do not have the numbers yet to draw any strong conclusions about anything, really but that in the first year of observing with James Webb's GTO, ERS and Cycle 1 GO programs, we will have more than doubled the information content that we have on giant planet atmospheres and characterization, um, which is really friggin' exciting. I mean, that's going to be, that's a huge amount of information we're going to get in the first year alone. Um, the meeting itself finished with a in-person gathering of the Transiting Exoplanet Community DDERS team to discuss some finalized plans for that proposal. So just to expand on all of these ridiculous acronyms I'm throwing, throwing around. Uh, DDERS is Director's Discretionary Early Release Science Time, which will be awarded up to 15 international teams of scientists to test the various modes on the James Webb Space Telescope, uh, looking at the operation uh, and to distribute those results and analysis uh, methods to the wider community such that everybody's on the same level when they're proposing for James Webb time. Everybody, you can't win James Webb time by saying that I understand the instrument because you've been given the opportunity to understand the instrument before. So there's not going to be a hierarchy formed. This ERS time from the director that that has been put aside is going to put everybody on the same footing so that the best science cases win in the future. Um, 
Now, the Transiting Exoplanet community um, have come together uh, as a team, and what we're aiming to do is make three types of observations using all four of the instruments in various mode combinations. Um, and we'll conduct afterwards data challenges, which will be little workshops where the wider community can come together and analyze and interpret those observations. So it's really a, a community-driven effort to, to bring all of these time series observations to the front so that everybody's on the same footing. Um, and outside of the GTO, so the general, uh, the guaranteed time observations, which, which were distributed many, many years ago amongst different teams, and these early release science time, there is also the cycle one general observing programs. Um, and that's going to take place in the first year of the operations as well. And the call for these general observing programs uh, for cycle one will go out on November 30th this year. And that is to absolutely everybody and anybody who wants to propose to use the James Webb Space Telescope can do so. Um, so I encourage everybody to get thinking about what science you want to do uh, and what you want to use the James Webb Space Telescope for and get in contact with people that you, you think will be really excited about that science too and put something together because it's really important that we as a community uh, of exoplanet scientists, it doesn't matter if you're doing transiting time series or anything else, just everybody comes together and really puts these proposals forward to do some really excellent science so we can understand uh, these planets uh, a little bit more. So uh, overall, it was, a, it was a really good meeting. It was open to everybody. It was also broadcast online. And uh, we will be putting the link to all of those in the link on our website. So feel free to go and watch the entire three days of the conference if you feel like it. Um, and you could, they also recorded the workshop, so you can join along with that um, at home. So yeah, it was, it was a good meeting. And it's really definitely built to be open to the entire community. So do we have the planets yet to study in all of this detail? You mentioned the information content is going to go up, but do we have all of those planets that we want to study there yet? So currently with the Hubble Space Telescope, we've observed nearly or actually now over 50 giant exoplanets um, and even more, including the Trappist systems and a couple of small super Earth systems. So there is a huge number of planets that we, we have to look at. Uh, and try and understand more because right now what we have is a detection in the atmosphere and in only five percent of the case we've got a constraint based on those measurements because we, we've got a high enough precision with Hubble. What James Webb Space Telescope is going to do is give us that really high precision over a huge wavelength range. So not only are we going to be detecting things that we haven't been able to detect before because of where their wavelength signature is, but we're also going to get the high enough precision to constrain them. So it, it really is going to be very different information we're getting for the same targets we've looked at before. This is really cool, Hannah. And I, I'm just wondering, given your experience with Hubble as well, if you if you see there's like a change in the philosophy of how science is, is being done with these telescopes, I mean, you stressed how kind of open and community driven it was. Do you, do you think it's it's a it's a move towards that from a new generation of scientists coming through with this community-minded feeling about things? Is it is it moving in the right direction? I, I think it was very very clear that Kepler 
and the way that things were done had really impacted uh, the community and the way it interacts with each other. These these data challenge workshops were really originated in in the exoplanet community with the Kepler team uh, and trying to make sure that we understand and are doing the data analysis correctly. And that's been something that's been picked up by by Space Telescope and they really want to drive forward. That's one of the driving forces here is to make sure that not one person is getting prioritized over another because of their experience. It's really trying to make sure that everybody's being pushed up uh, at the same rate. So it doesn't matter if you, you're ancient and you've done this for decades, uh, which is really nice. And they're really recognizing the, the fact that this is, this is a whole scientific community and it should be equal opportunity to get observations of a really cool science idea. I couldn't agree more. Sounds fantastic. Right. Uh, I'm guessing it's been another busy month of exoplanet news because the the exoplanet train never stops going. Andrew, what have we got? You're right there, Hannah. Well, welcome to the news desk. July 2017 has been busy. There's been a, a lot going on. And first off, uh, I want to talk about a potential exomoon, which I'm sure we're all very excited about. So uh, this month, uh, astronomers Alex Tichy and David Kipping from Columbia University, as well as a citizen scientist uh, called A.R. Schmidt, uh, announced the discovery of a very strong exomoon candidate. Um, So this is Kepler-1625b1, which is the first time I've used that notation. How very exciting. Um, So anyway, Kepler-1625b is likely a Jupiter-sized planet and... um, it's orbited by a moon, potentially, roughly the size of Neptune. So this candidate, this exomoon candidate, was detected at a 4.1 sigma confidence level from some of the highest quality Kepler light curves, which for those of you who are not um, super familiar with statistics in, in this contest, uh, context, it basically means that the authors are very confident that the, the signal that they see best fits a model of an object in orbit of another object, and it's, bas- and it's not caused by random noise or, or, or something else. So to put this in context, the gold standard for much of astronomy is, is three sigma, where sigma here is the notation for a standard deviation from the mean of a distribution. So three sigma is three standard deviations from the mean, which means that we're like 99.87% sure that the signal is real, in quotes, uh, and it has a 0.13% probability of being false. So at four sigma, we're like essentially at zero probability of being false. So this is a strong result, but, and of course there's a but, the strength of that result is has to be considered relative to the quality of the data from which it was taken. Uh, and the authors themselves consider the Kepler-like curves, even though they're pretty good, to still be too inconclusive at this stage. Um, the systematic effects caused by, you know, the spacecraft and the hardware and, and the software and the processing. So, um, Luckily, the authors will have some Hubble time to follow up this result, um, so hopefully we'll know a little bit more about that um, and know for sure if this is a moon or not very soon. Um, it should also be noted that the point of the paper uh, was actually to determine the likelihood of exomoons existing in the wider Kepler, Kepler population. It was uh, an ensemble study, pretty much, uh, and then they just tacked a really cool exomoon candidate onto the end. Um, so the authors determined that exomoons appear to be quite rare um, in the inner regions of star systems, constraining the occurrence rate of Galilean-like moon systems to 38% or so uh, of the 300 warm Kepler planets studied, which they consider remarkably low, uh, and sp- speculate that this 
death could be attributable to the moons being lost as their planets migrate inwards towards the star. So this seems like an amazing result. What do you what do you make of it, Hannah? Will Hubble be able to shed some light? Uh, well, yeah, hopefully. One thing I, w- I would like to point out is the reason why that they they had to tack on the end of this this result is because. Uh, and and uh, Alex Tichy, the lead author of this paper, actually writes a very, very good blog post on this. So I, I recommend going to go find that. Um, it was discovered by a journalist um, quite suddenly, apparently, that all Hubble Space Telescope uh, proposal abstracts are available for anyone to go in and read, which has been the case since Hubble started. But that's not the point. So... Uh, it turned out that this journalist had decided to go look at these proposals that had been accepted and saw that there was a proposal to look at the ExoMoon candidate, which named the candidate and uh, it, it they, they had to put this in there to just jump the attempt of them releasing information before they wanted it to be released. That's kind of what happened, but actually it was a astronomer tweeted it because astronomers tend to look through these things right they look at what what proposals have got time and and what and what might be interesting so actually um, i won't name names but some some, an astronomer tweeted it saying this is interesting and that's how the press picked it up they didn't go hunting through the hst proposals right that wasn't made clear um but yeah the fact that they had to attack this on is is clearly because of outside pressure which uh doesn't it doesn't really help but i think that they they did it very very well i think it's a very well written paper with with very it's very coherent the way that it's done uh speaking to the detection itself uh i'm a very skeptical person when it comes to these things um and and the kepler light curves as you mentioned have a number of factors that need to be considered but something else that isn't really mentioned a huge amount is the stellar variability itself there isn't much discussion on on what impact that's going to have on the light curve and you can see that in the the very clear moon um light curve with the 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 transit of the planet and then the moon following um around that it's a very beautiful detection but there are also systematics and um things in that light curve which exceed the amplitude of the signal that they're looking for so it's a little bit hard within the noise to see to see that signal and i think that it definitely warrants follow-up um but i think it requires a fairly decent amount of follow-up before it becomes uh, anywhere near a confirmed and and rightly they they say it's a candidate and that's the way things start so i i'm, I'm not arguing with that i'm just pointing out the fact that there are things that, that definitely need follow-up on this, um, and the word candidate should be in capital letters in bold. So they, they also found, a I think, a four-sigma anti-moon candidate, which I think says to me that there are systematics there because that shouldn't exist. So they, they found a four-sigma effectively bump, something with a negative radius that seemed to have the same have a have a strong you know detection so um that says to me that yeah definitely we should be cautious with this and wait till hst observations okay thanks guys um i'm gonna move on to other news uh is tess broken the transiting exoplanet survey satellite which we've talked about a lot on the show most recently last week as i'm sure you'll remember hugh gave us a great overview um is due to launch next year however it's recently emerged that 
the focus of the four cameras on TESS will drift when the spacecraft cools to operating temperatures after launch next March. Primarily, I believe, to the properties of the adhesive that was used to glue those detectors into place. So this could have some serious effects for the photometric precision of the spacecraft. Um, and reports from the TESS team um, is that there will be maybe a 10% reduction in terms of the number of planets that they expect to be able to detect. However, the NASA Big Cheese still consider spacecraft able to complete its primary mission and the launch is therefore going ahead. The cost of addressing the issue before launch, maybe swapping out the cameras or something, is just way too considerable at this stage. So it all comes down to a cost benefit. So Hugh, how likely is this to affect the science yield from tests? When they say like a 10% reduction in the number of planets, I'm more interested in the type of planets or the, you know, the, how this will change the demographics that might come out of this. Yeah, and weirdly, it might actually improve it depending on what you're looking for. Because what normally happens for really bright stars, and if you're looking, trying to look for planets around bright stars, is you defocus a telescope. And that's effectively what TESS has accidentally done, is defocus their telescope a bit more than they were supposed to. So this will mean that bright stars might even have better photometry. Um, what it also means is that the faint stars will have worse photometry they'll kind of drop off in sensitivity so that's where the 10 percent uh, loss in planets comes from it comes from around faint stars so in fact um that, and those are the less interesting planets anyway because we can't do as much follow-up with them except maybe the really late m dwarfs where we might find the super earths and earth-sized planets uh, which are also faint but um yeah i think it should be fine although it does make me worried uh working on plato that they got four four cameras slightly wrong, and it, it kind of compromised the mission a little bit. I, I mean, Plato has thirty of them, so uh, I hope that I hope that we learn how to fix focuses before this happens again. Just make sure you're using the right glue. Special spacecraft glue is the key. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Okay, that's great news. Um, good. Uh, so also this month, uh, it was found that free floating planets are nowhere near as common as once reported. Um, and to be honest, I stated on a previous exocast, quite a few episodes ago now, um, that there were crap loads of these planets out there in space, to use a technical term. But then again, I don't really profess to know what I'm talking about, um, and that applies across the board, just for the record. Um, and in my defense, a 2011 microlensing paper that I read, which I'm, you know is not my area of expertise, suggested that Jupiter-sized rogue planets could be even more common than main sequence stars. And this you know, didn't really gel too well with planet formation theory anyway. So a study released this week uh, that looked at many more microlensing events has downgraded this estimate to perhaps 0.25 rogue Jupiters per star. So, boo. Um, this is in keeping with the aforementioned planet formation models, though. It seems to gel a little bit better with that. Uh, and I mean, could we really expect every star in the galaxy to kick out more than one Jupiter-sized planet during the early stages of the planetary system's formation? I mean, a planet for every four stars makes intuitively a bit more sense. Um, so perhaps the galaxy isn't as full of free floaters, as I'm now calling them. Um, but even at 0 0.25 per star, that's still seven billion, or sorry, several billion cold, dark, uh, weird orphans to be found out there in the depths of space. I think this is this is one um, one of those results which kind of has partial blame in the system of academic publishing because. If you see a weird result and it's low significance, like this one was, then I think the weirder it is, the more likely it is to be published in a good journal. And that was kind of what happened with the original result, is that 
there was this really contradictory um, two point something sigma uh, bump in the distribution, and it got published in Nature. Uh, but two point something sigma bumps should never be published, I don't think, <laughs> especially not in a high impact journal. And then, of course, a lot of those will disappear because it's not particularly significant. So, yeah, I think this is one of those uh, cautionary tales for um, the biases in publications. Yeah, it seems like they're prioritizing the weirdness over the scientific quality, perhaps. Yeah, that's a problem. So talking of weird stuff, uh, apparently GJ1132 has an atmosphere. So we've talked about this planet on Exocast before, I think. Uh, but as a quick reminder, it's a uh, 650 Kelvin planet. Uh, it receives you know, 19 times the radiative flux of the Earth, and it orbits a 5 billion year old star. So this is hotter than Venus, and its star is very, very much smaller than the Sun, somewhere between 0.2 and 0.25 solar radii. Um, and the authors of a recent paper in the Astronomical Journal claim to have detected this planet's atmosphere based on nine transits using the MPH 2.2 meter telescope at ESO Lycia. So there appears to be this large, diffuse atmosphere around the planet extending out to approximately 4% of the total radius of the disk. So it's pretty puffy. Um, now, interestingly, the radius of the planet, uh, which is reported as between 1.1 and 1.5, uh, somewhere in that range, Earth radii, puts it on the probably not side of the photo evaporation gap for short period worlds, which suggests that we wouldn't necessarily expect a large distended atmosphere like this on a planet of this size at this distance from a star like this, or in fact any atmosphere at all, apart from some sort of extremely transient outgassed envelope. So to add to the confusion, the composition of the atmosphere is reported as water rich, like between one and 10% mixing ratio, or possibly a water-methane mix. So my initial thoughts are that I would have thought these would be heavily photolicized over five billion years, um, given the probably very high UV flux that comes from small stars like this. Um, and also the separate discovery paper of GJ1132 uh, back in 2015 suggests uh, a loss of as much as 50 Earth oceans of water over five billion years. So therefore we might not expect like a huge amount of water, uh, maybe O2 or N2 or CH2, uh, but even maybe like 5% water seems very high. Um, I guess that said, we don't know what the star's UV history has been, uh, or if there was any late volatile delivery that could have topped up the supply. Um, but Hannah, given that you're our resident atmosphere expert, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on this? Um, so I'm... I honestly haven't looked at the this planet. I don't really deal with the smaller ones, but I do know that Hannah Diamond Lowe, who is part of the discovery team for this planet, has also been doing characterization studies of this. And from what I can remember, they didn't actually find any evidence that there is features in, in the planetary atmosphere uh, to the significance of what was presented in that other paper. Um, there, there seems to be some controversy around these smaller planets um, and actually at the James Webb workshop uh, Hannah herself uh, presented the, the data and she actually was talking about the fact that these Earths and these, these planets around these M dwarf stars like GJ1132 are going to require a significant amount of ground-based follow-up before we can really say much at all and before we can really propose to observe them with the space-based telescopes because 
we're really not entirely sure what their atmospheres should be made of. Uh, We don't have great mass information for them. Um, And the the detection and the actual confirmation of them themselves takes up a huge amount of telescope time. So um, her and the team that she's working with, uh, which are are both at Harvard, MIT uh, and Colorado now, um, are really trying to work out how they can efficiently do this process of the follow-up analysis that is required for these these M star uh, earth-sized or you know potentially rocky planets um so there is going to be a huge amount that is being put into the these planets so it's a difficult system to use there aren't many reference stars from the ground that are appropriate to calibrate this data and reference stars allow you to really work out what the atmosphere is doing at the time of your observations so you can make sure that you remove that um, from your ground-based observation of the target star Uh, and that's one of the things that she discusses in in her paper uh, in detail is the importance of the the calibration stars that you're going to be using for this. So I I think we're going to see a lot to come with this uh, GJ1132. It's certainly one of the better stars to look at with the James Webb Space Telescope um, and one of the smaller planets that we can look at. So uh, I don't see the uh, the end of this discussion very soon. Yeah, I I think possibly they did just detect water in an Earth-sized planet. It just happened to be in the atmosphere between the telescope and the star rather than in the planet's atmosphere that they were looking at because those those light curves that apparently show a detection in of large radius in z band they do not look good they look like their systematics so i would totally expect jwst or, or uh, hst to find a flat line for that planet hmm. okay we'll we'll keep an eye on that and see if you're right at some point in the future here so while I'm on the subject of atmospheres, it's bad news for fans of Proxima Centauri b, our closest neighbour and strong candidate for a pretty habitable planet up to this point, as a recent study suggests that its atmosphere would be stripped by intense uh, XUV radiation from its host star in as little as 100 million years. Um, so this, as you might imagine, is not great for habitability, as atmospheres are pretty beneficial for climate and radiation shielding and, you know, breathing and, and stuff. So that's bad news. But I, I guess more follow-up and, and more... This was a modelling a modeling study. Um, uh, more to come. Hold your breath. We'll, 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 we'll see. Um, last, but definitely not least, I hope you'll join me in congratulating our very own Hugh Osborne on passing his PhD viva and becoming an official Doctor of Space. So well done, Hugh. <laughs> doctor of Space, well that's done. right, yeah. <laughs> is that an official title? I hope it is. No. Yeah, absolutely. We didn't tell you this until you were actually in the club. But yeah, official Doctor of Space. (laughs) Don't tell everyone else then. Come on. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. No, well done, Hugh. Um, And that's it for the news. And to finish off this episode, it's Hannah's turn to adopt an exoplanet into our exocast family. So who are we welcoming this month? Uh, I have chosen for our exocast system... uh, the directly imaged world 51 Eridani B, or 51 Eri B, which was the first exoplanet discovered using the Gemini Planet Imager, or GPI, which is an instrument on the Gemini South Telescope in Chile. 51 Eri is the the, the star itself um, that this planet orbits is approximately 100 light years away and is only 20 million years old, so that's pretty, pretty damn young. Um, 
But that's actually really important here because that means that the planets orbiting that star will also be young uh, and will still be undergoing gravitational contraction as they as they age and cool down. Um, and this process itself gives off a heat signature, which can then be directly detected by taking an image of that system. Um, and this is what the, the group of astronomers led by Bruce McIntosh did using the GPI instrument. They were able to get a direct image of the planet 51 RIB which uh, by, by masking the host star in the middle um, and by masking that light, they were able to see the light that's being directly emitted by that planet. What's really important about, about this planet's discovery itself, um, it's not the first directly imaged world. Uh, it is the first one with the GPI system, but it, it does have something else unique about it. Um, not only did they get a direct image of the planet, they were also able to get a direct spectrum of that planet. Um, normally when you get a direct image, you take many, many months or even years to get data to, to work out the proper motion of the system um, to determine whether or not it's bound to the star that you're blocking out, that you're masking. But by taking a direct spectrum from this planet, what they were able to see was that the atmosphere is made up of methane and water. Um, and in an object of the brightness that they detected and the distance of that object meant that the, the only thing it could be was a planet and not a more distant brown dwarf or, or something else in the vicinity. Um, so this was not only the first GPI detection, but it was the first confirmation of a directly imaged planet based on spectroscopic classification of the atmosphere. So uh, 51 RIB itself sits just 13.2 AU away from its star, um, and its temperature is around 700 Kelvin. Um, it's roughly the same size as Jupiter, but it's likely to be twice the mass of Jupiter. Um, since they discovered it um, with the spectroscopy, um, they've actually done further confirmation. So they've, they've actually done this measurement of the proper motion, which matches it to its host star. So we're seeing not only uh, the spectra of the planet, but now we're also seeing its motion uh, with that host star and around that host star. So it, I think, you know, this this makes a really nice addition to our, our little exocast family, um, having this, this really interesting characterized directly imaged world. Excellent planet to add to the the. How many are we on now? Fifteen others, I believe. It's a nice little family we're gathering together. Well, thanks so much for joining us for another instalment of Exocast. Next month, Hannah's going to talk about global circulation models. Andrew's going to peer into the petri dish of origin of life research, and I will be reporting from the Exoplanetary News Desk. For more Exocast, you can check out all of our previous shows on our website, exocast.org, and on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. Until next time. Bye. Bye bye. Exocast.